from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Franco Gawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, are shareable scooters really sustainable? A recipe for circular jeans, a visit with our emerging leaders, and a new operating manual for Spaceship Earth. And no, it's not from NASA. We're out to launch this week on 350. It's July 19th, 2019. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Heather Clancy is off this week, so joining me here in Green Biz Studio is Green Biz Group Vice President and Executive Director of Verge, Shauna Rappaport. Hello, Shauna. Hello, Joel. Great to have you here this week, as uh, we do when Heather can't make it or sometimes when I can't make it, so you've become our kind of go-to uh, fill-in co-host. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. So you are busy. Verge is coming up in, what, three months or something like that. Um, what, talk a little bit about what's, what's going on for you. What, what are you working on? What are you excited about? Mostly sitting around twiddling my thumbs. <laughs> yeah, that's typical for you. I know exactly how that is. You and me too. No, I'm so, so excited about Verge this year. We're expecting over 3,000 people at the October event. We've got some, we've got, we're taking some new approaches at a number of things across the event this year. One, sort of in line with the traditional kind of growth of large scale events, we're actually cutting back the amount of keynote time. So that's been a, a, a challenge and design constraint, but I'm really excited about the 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 program that we're building for our, our plenaries. So we've been cutting back the plenary time for a while, but talk a little bit about why. You know, one of the one of the things that we see consistently year on year in in surveys in particular is that people come to Verge, people come to Green Biz events first and foremost to connect with people. That is where they source the greatest value. Yes, they come to learn. Yes, they come for inspiration and ideas. But we wanted to create a little bit more space within the the ultimately the three days that we have together to uh, create more opportunities for people to connect with one another. Yeah, it's really sort of ironic that in this digital age, or maybe it's because of the digital age, people really still want to come together face-to-face, press the flesh, look in each other's eyes, and, and have conversations, both people they know and people they don't know. So one of the things you're deep into is the Summit series that we'll be having at Verge. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so we are building on, gosh, I think five years now of successful gatherings of these sort of half-day events within the event. Participation is by invitation, and it's really, our Summit Series is really focused on on specific markets within the clean economy and bringing together a a highly focused and high-impact group of people to really roll up their sleeves. So you talk about people wanting to connect with each other, that too is what we discover year after year year is that these half-day summits in which people have the opportunity to, you know, with the exception of one panel at the outset, really roll up their sleeves on, on specific issues is, is hugely, hugely valuable for folks. So I'm, um, I'm very excited about the, the topics that we're focusing on this year, which include um, scaling commercial zero-emission vehicles in California, uh, food waste, and, uh, and grid resilience, which we, um, I wrote about in my Verge piece this morning, and we'll be rolling out more details soon. 
Yeah, you and I both wrote about uh, the, the summits in our respective newsletters, my Green Buzz newsletter on Mondays and your Verge Weekly on Wednesdays. And we talked a little bit about uh, sort of the big vision, and we related it to the news this week of the 50th anniversary of the moon landing in 1969. And, and the big vision, the moonshot, and the fact that after 50 years of all this advancements in technology and new memes and language, we still refer to moonshot as sort of the ultimate iteration of human achievement. And in the summits, we aim to ask some of the big kinds of questions, uh, as we like to talk about the what would it take questions um, that uh, often don't get asked because they're just a little bit too big or maybe way too big for individual organizations to think about. So what are the questions we'll be looking at this time? So Tuesday's Commercial Zero Emission Vehicle Summit, which we are delighted to be producing in partnership with CalSTAR, is really focused on what it will take to accelerate the number of zero emission commercial vehicles on California's roads. And that's in the context of California's ambitious transportation policy and goals around uh, slashing or reducing, rather, transportation emissions 40% by 2030. So these are commercial vehicles. So these are both passenger cars, but also vans and and, uh, pickup trucks and, and ultimately all the way up to, to semis? Up to medium and heavy duty, absolutely. Great. So, okay, that's uh, the Verge Transport one. How about Verge Energy and Verge Circular? Yeah, so I'll go in chronological order. On Wednesday, as part of our Verge Circular conference, we are going to be producing and convening a food waste summit, uh, which is really focused on accelerating the technologies, partnerships, and the new business models that are dramatically reducing or eliminating food waste. And we're actually in conversation right now, both with some potential partners, but also really looking at something that we've learned over the years of doing these summits, which is that the more focused we can be both in the in the market opportunity, in the topic, in the group that we're convening, uh, the more potentially valuable and meaningful. So we might actually be amending that a bit to focus on an even more specific facet of food waste. Yeah, and all these are sort of works in progress because we do, as you like to say, get that sweet spot of what's the topic that we really can, we can lean into as a group, but also you know have some uh, potential to come up with some interesting solutions. So there's one more. Uh, energy, right? There is indeed. That will take place on the Thursday of Verge, and that is going to be our Grid Resilience Summit, building on the success of last year's Energy Verge Energy Summit, which was really focused specifically on microgrids and commercializing, scaling microgrids. This year, we're expanding that scope and, again, focusing really on, on California, but the lessons that can be learned and applicable in other states across the nation, around the world, looking at the technological, the financial, the policy in innovations that are really needed to ensure a resilient electricity grid. Great. Well, that's exciting. And as I said, more to come on that, including some fine-tuning of topics, but really exciting stuff. Uh, That's a little peek ahead, but let's take a look back at the Week in Review. So let's start this week talking about scooters. Shauna, you want to kick it off? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, living and working here in downtown Oakland, I've certainly been paying attention to sort of the increasing world of last mile transportation, urban mobility solutions. Katie Fehrenbacher of Green Biz doesn't, has done an excellent job at kind of tracking that emerging landscape. This week we ran a piece called Shareable Scooters May Seem Sustainable, But Are They Really? And what I thought was really interesting about this piece is, you know, and is you sort of you see these and at, at these you know scooters and and other e-mobility solutions 
and at glance, it's like, oh yeah, that's absolutely, you know, reducing emissions, helping people get where they need to go faster and more efficiently. But what I thought was really interesting about this piece is a is a hugely important and in many ways actually a circular economy topic because you don't often think about what is the life cycle of these products or these these scooters in and of themselves. And you know, realizing that right now the average scooter is lasting about a month in the city and and Bird, which is one of the 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 most uh, or more widespread companies, they claim that several months are actually more realistic. But even even with some of the investments that are happening now in in designing and producing new models that you know have the potential to better withstand shared usage, weather conditions, we're still only talking about what was it? I think eight to twelve months or something. So I think it's in it's 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 interesting to think about sort of the costs and benefits. How do we weigh um, the the environmental uh, impacts of of uh, these emergencies? Emerging technologies. Yeah, and we don't talk about the hardware all that much. We just assume that it's it's good and because it's lighter and it's electric and and therefore. But yeah, she uh, Patty Baker, who's a, a writer who uh, work, writes uh, occasionally for NCO, our, our friends over there, uh, from which this piece came, uh, talks about uh, the fact that yeah, some in Louisville, Kentucky, that the average scooter lasted about a month in the city. As she says, that's a moon cycle, uh, and that the uh, longer ones uh, that are being developed by Bird uh, could go from eight months to a year or more. Um, and so, you know, these are still surprisingly, you know, relative to other vehicles or bicycles, which tend to last for uh, many years and sometimes a decade or more. Uh, there's a lot of work to be done here, not just in designing the bikes, but figuring out how do you keep them in service. Uh, and that's, that's of course, part of the circular economy is not simply recycling its product longevity and product utilization rates. How do you get the most usage and the longest life out of every molecule that we that we put into the marketplace. So it's just a thought-provoking piece uh, that um, I really uh, I really liked. Yeah, what also caught my eye too, well, just to that point as well, I think another key piece of that is also education of, of users and around maintenance and looking at the, the whole sort of system of engaging the, the users as well. One piece that caught my eye was seeing our, our old friend Asaf Bitterman's name pop up in the piece. He used to run, and I, I believe he still is the associate director of the MIT Sensible Cities Lab. It looks like he's now launched a company called Super Pedestrian, which is actually applying AI artificial intelligence-based software that's actually helping to extend the lives of these um, these scooters, which I thought was really, really interesting. So neat to think about how sort of the intersection of more advanced and emerging technologies have the potential to help solve some of these um, life cycle issues too. It's an e-bike. It's an e-scooter. It's super pedestrian. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on to another story about um, why corporate directors are in the crosshair of, of corporate climate litigation. This is really serious stuff, and this is, I think, a harbinger of some things that we'll be seeing in the coming uh, months and, and certainly in the coming years. And this is where corporate directors are being held liable for, for violating their fiduciary responsibilities in insulating the company from climate change. And um, there's been some cases already in Germany. There's one here with RWE, the German energy company, where um, a mountain guide in Peru sued uh, RWE for climate-related harms. Uh, that's uh, interesting. And, and it's really the, just sort of the beginning 
uh, of the sort of the canary in the in the legal coal mine here. Uh, there's been an explosion of climate litigation launched, according to Lisa Benjamin, who wrote this piece. She's an assistant professor at the Lewis and Clark Law School at Dalhousie University. Um, there is a lot more to come, and and we've seen here in 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 Oakland and San Francisco, they've they've sued. Uh, uh, different uh, corporations for not doing their part to uh, reduce or eliminate climate change. Uh, so has New York and other counties in California, Washington, Colorado, the state of Rhode Island, and and fishermen in Oregon and California. So this is a whole new landscape for uh, of legal liability for companies and their boards who aren't on the case when it comes to climate change. Yeah, I was really struck too to to see the the number and spectrum of of cities specifically across the across North America, including of course Netherlands as well. That's been out front on this, and you know, and also we've been seeing over the last couple of years as well this emergence of actually a lot of young people that are 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 suing um, state and national governments as well. And you know, one thing that caught my eye that that was particularly interesting to me. I think this whole landscape is fascinating, and it's there's a lot of uncertainty. About about where where sort of the tea leaves are gonna gonna fall on how all this plays out, but this one point in the piece about how sort of corporate climate litigation, climate litigation in general, is really highlighting the bi-directional risks of climate change. In other words, companies are emitting greenhouse gases that increase climate impacts, but those impacts are also directly affecting companies. And so, you know, these courts are really wanting to understand and make sure that that directors have really considered all the material information reasonably available to them, um, including the increasing impacts and risks of climate change to business. And this is something we think and talk about a lot, not just at Verge, but across all, all of what we do here at GreenBiz is, is the R word, is, is, is risk and how that's, how that's playing out and shifting the landscape. Yeah, I started talking as I give presentations, keynote speeches and the like that for all the other reasons that uh, companies engage in, in sustainability issues around cutting costs and improving quality and being a preferred supplier and attracting and retaining talent, that it really does boil down, as you said, to the R word, to risk and financial risk, right, to operate risk, uh, business continuity risk, reputational risk, stranded asset policy risk. There's all, all sorts of them, and I think we're just beginning to see uh, – those chickens come home to roost a little bit here, um, and we'll be uh, just to mix uh, in another metaphor. I think what's going on in this uh, in this story here is really the tip of the melting iceberg. Oh boy! So anyway, let's quickly move on. Uh, to the third story we want to talk about this week from our regular columnist, Shannon Hood, uh, who writes the Purpose and People column. She wrote about how Stanley Black & Decker is using the Sustainable Development Goals to grow a new-collar workforce. Pretty interesting stuff. Uh, so she interviewed Deb Geyer, who's the corporate responsibility officer for Stanley Black & Decker. And... Uh, uh, they've been working on how do you create a thriving resource that meets the needs and the challenges of a changing economy, um, and how does sustainability and corporate responsibility play into that? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that struck me, it's nothing particularly profound or new, but it's always interesting to see how people are talking about purpose and the way that she and, and Stanley Black & Decker are, are orienting to that as a company is that purpose for them is really about the intersection of who they are as a company and what society needs from us. And I think, you know, it seems in some ways so simple, but that asking that question, the why of our existence for 
every company these days is so, so critical. And it's very exciting to see the way in which they've chosen to align their sort of strategic growth with the UN Sustainable Development Goals as well. Yeah, so they have three main pillars of their of their goals, empowering makers, people who, who make things with their products, uh, innovating with purpose, and creating a more sustainable world. And for each of those, they, they mapped that to relevant sustainable development goals. So it won't go into the you know SDGs 4, 8, and 10 for Empower Markets. You'll have to read the piece because it's pretty interesting. But I love that they did that, and I think that's a, a model that gr- more and more companies are doing is looking at – uh, how do these 17 goals, which are all BHAG, you know, big ideas, big visions, and kind of complicated and not necessarily things that companies do. Companies aren't necessarily in the business of, of eliminating hunger, for example, unless you're a food company. But even then, that's not necessarily your responsibility. But companies thinking about how do we map what we do to those goals, and that's the first step towards actually really leaning into them. You know, we're five years into the 15-year SDG timeframe, and so this is sort of being seen as the, you know, get organized in the next five years or really get going and and start implementing and start to take on uh, much more than it had in, in the first five years, these, uh, as I said, BHAG kinds of goals. So uh, great initiative from Stanley Black & Decker, and uh, thanks to Shannon for calling it out. So, Shawnee, you had a chat this week with a good pal of yours, Amanda Joy Ravenhill, who's the executive director of the Buckminster Fuller Institute. Um, what'd you talk about? Let's uh, tee it up. Well, I'll let the segment speak for itself, but this year marks the 50th anniversary of one of Buckminster Fuller's really seminal books called The Operating Manual for Spaceship Earth. Um, if you haven't read it, I highly encourage you to, but even more so, I encourage folks to, to listen to the segment and consider how to get involved with uh, BFI, the Buckminster Fuller Institute's newest initiative, which uh, is marking that 50th anniversary called the Co-Operating Manual for Spaceship Earth. You know, Amanda Joy was uh, the co-founder and executive director of Project Drawdown, which hopefully many folks know about. Drawdown as a as a book was really one of the uh, landmark pieces to map, measure, and model the top 100 solutions for reversing global warming. This cooperating manual for Spaceship Earth is is a is a sequel to Drawdown of sorts, but it's not just about climate change or global warming. It's really about environmental and social regeneration more broadly. And um, we'll hear from Amanda about the vision of the project and and perhaps most excitingly the the methodology behind how they're going about creating it. So let's start with a quick level set, especially for those listeners who are less familiar with Buckminster Fuller and the Operating Manual for Spaceship Earth. Give us a little window of insight. Who was Bucky and and why has the Operating Manual been such a, a transformative piece of work in the environmental movement? Of course, yes. So Buckminster Fuller was a, a Renaissance man in the 20th century. He was this really great combination of a kind of technologist, engineer, while also being a humanitarian and also an ecologist. Um, One of his main principles was doing more with less, and he's very well known for the geodesic dome, uh, which is a building that covers the most space with the least amount of material, thus doing more with less. Um, He often talked about moving our economy from one based on scarcity 
2-1 based on abundance, uh, saying that we actually have the technological capability of taking care of everyone on planet Earth at a higher standard of living than any have ever known. Uh, his operating manual for Spaceship Earth was his most seminal text. It was published in 1969, 50 years ago. And it was less of a manual and really more of a provocation about why don't we have a manual for operating this living spaceship uh, that we are all aboard as crew. And um, part of that manual he insisted upon was looking at nature for kind of the fundamental principles um, you know, similar to what biomimicry is looking at now, kind of how do we look to nature as a, as a design inspiration? That's perfect. So talk a little bit about the vision for the co-operating manual for Spaceship Earth. What's, what's really the desired end product and what's the, the unique approach that you're taking to develop it? Of course, yeah. So we're honoring the 50th anniversary uh, by launching the co-operating manual for Spaceship Earth. It's really a, kind of a wiki for designing a regenerative future, um, really taking that provocation of Buckminster Fuller's and creating a manual, uh, really co-creating a manual with everyone who wants to uh, work with us. The idea is to really you know, emphasize cooperation and you know, teach ourselves what a lot of different traditions, indigenous traditions uh, have known and practiced for millennia, which is working with earth systems, cooperating with nature uh, in order to thrive on a living spaceship earth. And so we're gonna have chapters on everything from oceans to empathy, regenerative ecosystems, we're looking at transit equity and environmental justice. Um, and we're looking for people to co-author it with us. Every chapter will have a series of solutions and strategies um, that pertain to that topic and all kind of within this kind of nature inspired and regenerative view. And uh, we're inviting people to join us and, um, and be co-authors. Beautiful. Now, not, not many books are co-authored in really such a highly distributed way. Why are you choosing to develop the cooperating manual so cooperatively? And, and why, from your perspective, is cooperation so needed in these times? Of course, yeah. So this isn't the first project that I run this way. Um, I was the co-founder and executive director at Project Drawdown, and it was so powerful to cooperate on that, really build a coalition around it. And kind of building off of that work, we thought, you know, what if it was really truly open source and, and cooperative, um, bringing people in in order to kind of collectively determine what is the most kind of optimistic and honest and inclusive way that we can design our future. And I see cooperation really as this kind of central tenant to this flip from a win-lose game dynamic to a win-win uh, or positive sum game dynamic that we're switching into. Um, you know, we're seeing it across the board from like, the sharing economy to the caring economy, all these different ways that we're being generous and cooperative with one another. Uh, I think it's, it's kind of the, the central kernel of a big part of our uh, transition that we're in right now. Now, a majority of our listeners uh, come from the business community. How can they expect both to benefit from this sort of piece of work that you're creating with the cooperating manual? And, and what's your ask or invitation to the Green Biz community uh, in terms of ways to engage? Yeah, of course. Um, so we're building this manual for uh, business leaders, but also for policymakers, mayors, uh, and individuals to take action. On the business front, 
you know, I think this will help people looking to create a more regenerative strategy, whether that's looking at procurement, looking at product design. Uh, the idea here is that you can kind of scan a lot of the different strategies and solutions that are happening that are in tune with uh, the natural cycles and, and kind of inspired by the principles that we find in nature around the world. You've mentioned the word regenerative a couple of times in this conversation thus far. Can you kind of break down what do you what do you mean by regenerative business? Yeah, of course. So I like the definition of regenerative that says it is the process of kind of increasing the capacity of every system you touch. Um, so what that means is like, you know, as I kind of, you know, plant a tree, I'm increasing the capacity of that soil there to have more life. And in doing so, it creates kind of all of these cascading or co-benefits. Uh, a lot of our economy right now is extractive, where we have a huge weapons-based economy and the, you know, the kind of um, one of the things that results out of making weapons is these poisons and then those get turned into pesticides and it's kind of all of these ripple effects of extraction uh, and decreasing value of the system. Whereas in a regenerative model, you're actually increasing the value or the capacity of the systems that you touch. Um, so it's a really nature inspired way of looking at things. It's positive sum uh, and it's all about the co-benefits and, and what they say in permaculture is stack functions. Uh, so any one action, you try to create as much benefit as you can. I want to dig into that one more layer because it all sounds so nice. And in, in principle, I get it. I wonder if some of our listeners are asking the same question that I am, which is like, okay, what's a, what's a gold standard or even just an example of, of a business that's, that's embodying regenerative business principles? Are there any, any stories or examples that come to mind that you could share briefly? Yeah, Guayaki Yerba Mate. Um, so they work with uh, indigenous people in South Africa, South America, rather, um, to grow mate, uh, which is a, kind of a, a caffeine uh, drink, in a way that uh, increases the capacity of that ecosystem to help hold life and have more biodiversity and more habitat for animals. Uh, it actually sequesters carbon in the way that they're uh, growing the mate. So they're, they're increasing the capacity of, of all of these different systems that they're working with, whether that's the people and the farmers they're working with or the land that they're growing upon. And also all the employees are kind of invested in and, and really considered in their, uh, in their practices. And their product is really amazing as well. That's great. Thank you. Well, I want to end on a personal note. You know, so much of this initiative in your own work in the world is really about painting a picture of the future that we want. That's something that you speak about often. It was really embodied in the work with Project Drawdown. Give us a, a little window of insight into what that future looks like to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I like to call uh, the, these next couple decades the awkward era where the good news is gonna to continue to get better and the bad news worse for a little while. Um, so we're gonna bring balance into our communities through increasing life and increasing biodiversity. Um, but it's also during a time where we're gonna have extreme weather that's gonna to continue to dis destabilize some of those same systems, our food systems, our economic systems, uh, political systems, social systems, et cetera. So what we found with drawdown was that it actually takes about 25 years for temperatures to go back down after we achieve drawdown, which is when the concentrations of, of greenhouse gases start to decline. 
So drawdown will take up 30 years or less if we get our act together. Um, so that means we have about 55 years or so of increased extreme weather. And, you know, I think it's during that time of like building resilience towards that, that we're going to become more compassionate and more skilled and more resilient uh, and connected as a global community, uh, really a global community of vibrant local economies. And it's going to be really by building up our resilience to this time uh, that we'll end up building this new decentralized, thriving and regenerative world. Mm, thank you so much for painting that picture. I'm so honored and grateful to be on this path with you. Let's see, 50, 55 years from now, we'll be in our, our late 80s, 90s. Mm -hmm. Hopefully we'll get to look back and and reflect on um, just all of the good work that, that has occurred to get us where we um, hopefully will be. Thank you so much, Amanda Joy, for your vision, for your leadership, for your work with Project Drawdown, for the work that you're seeding now with the Cooperating Manual for Spaceship Earth, uh, with the Buckminster Fuller Institute. Uh, Amanda Joy Ravenhill, the Executive Director of the Buckminster Fuller Institute, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Shana. This week, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation published a set of guidelines for fashion brands and manufacturers to transform the way they produce denim jeans. The guidelines set minimum standards for garment durability, material health, recyclability, and traceability. Joining me now to discuss the jeans redesign guidelines is Francois Souchet, who leads the Make Fashion Circular Initiative at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. Hello, Francois. Hello, Joe. So first of all, what's the problem producing jeans? So currently the way jeans are manufactured is extremely wasteful and polluting. It takes a lot of water and a lot of resources. And overall, jeans are part of a fashion system which has led to the doubling of production of garments over the past 15 years, while the average number of times those garments have been worn um, has decreased by close to 40%. Wow. So how do these guidelines change that? So the idea that we had with the guidelines um, is to actually set minimum bounds for the durability of the product to ensure that actually uh, genes can last long enough, um, but also make sure that uh, through materials, health and recyclability, uh, requirements. We can ensure that the way they are made reduces the impact of uh, making jeans on the environment, but also ensures that once they can't be worn anymore, they can be effectively recycled into a new pair of jeans. So does it talk about how they get recycled? Do they bring them back to the store or the, me the mechanics of doing that? So no, the guidelines are effectively just uh, on the creation and manufacture of the jeans. Um, the way we, we see this work is as a starting point to explore how we could move towards a circular economy for clothes. And we see very much the guidelines as a, an initial step in that direction. And as we move forward, we will look more and more into the other mechanisms that are um, supportive of making this happen. And when it comes to collection, uh, one of the pilots that we ran earlier this year in New York with the hashtag Wear Next campaign was um, to explore how we could incentivize um, 
and um, and enable uh, people to ensure that they don't put their clothes in the trash, but effectively put them into uh, collection um, schemes that enable those clothes to become something else. Yeah. So is this a voluntary standard, or to the I think it is, but. Uh, is there auditing or verification? How is that going to work? So the way the way the guidelines work is organizations who are committing to those guidelines are filling a form that uh, provides details about how they intend to uh, fulfill the different requirements set out in the guidelines, and those uh, information are published. Um, by us um, quite officially and transparently so that everyone can assess uh, the commitment from each brand. And then we ask the different participants in the jeans redesign to provide information about how they've achieved their commitment uh, once they have produced the jeans uh, in May 2021. So I noticed uh, you've got a number of the major brands here, CNA, Gap, H&M, uh, Lee, uh, I think Wrangler is in here somewhere, Tommy Hilfinger, uh, but notably missing was the biggest jeans company in the world, Levi Strauss. Uh, why aren't they involved? I mean, that's more for them to answer that question than for us. Um, the idea that we had was to allow any organization who would want to join the jeans redesign. Um, now, depending on priorities, some some brands just couldn't make it at this stage. Um, but the exciting thing with the, the guidelines is that not particip- not being part of it uh, now doesn't mean that um, you can't be part of it in the future. Um, joining uh, the jeans redesign is still very open for any brand or manufacturer who would find it interesting. So as I'm sitting here talking to you, I am wearing a pair of CNA's cradle-to-cradle gold-certified jeans. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there's, they're, they're great jeans, but they're, they're unremarkable in the sense that you don't feel any different. They're sort of normal jeans, and that's both good and bad in, they, in that they uh, shouldn't be necessarily any different. But it also creates a challenge of how do you message this to consumers so that they know they're getting something that is responsibly made? Yeah, absolutely. And I think what's what's very interesting at the moment is that we see more and more customers actually asking the questions to brands about what are they doing to tackle the impact that the fashion industry has on on the planet. And what we feel is that each brand has a very different way of of telling that story. And um, what we encourage is for the different brands who participate in the jeans redesign to find a way to bring on board their customers um, and and explain um, how how those guidelines are actually helping move uh, forward um, in that space. So what happens next? Is this the first of uh, a number of different kinds of apparel that, for which you'll be creating guidelines for circularity? So at the moment, we, we very much see um, indeed the the jeans redesign as an entry point into looking at how can um, clothes in general be designed for a circular economy. And what we are doing um, at the moment is considering how we can um, look at this approach and ensure that over time we are able to cover more products. How that's exactly going to work is still uh, being defined, but that's, that's definitely the ambition. 
Well, it's an ambitious project to transform blue jeans, but I wish you well with it. Francois Suchet is the lead of the Make Fashion Circular initiative at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. Thanks for talking to us, Francois. Thank you, Joe. And if you want to download that report, you can find it at ellenmacarthurfoundation.org. This week, we ran a piece by Associate Editor Holly Seacon called Building a Movement, How Emerging Leaders Are Shaping a Circular Economy. This is based on the emerging leaders we run at uh, all of our events, including at the recent Circularity 19. And here's Holly to tell us about it. Holly, first of all, talk a little bit about the Emerging Leaders Program, what it is, how it works. Thanks, Joel. So... The Emerging Leaders Program originated a few years ago out of the idea that we wanted to make sure that a young, diverse group of students and young professionals pursuing sustainability would be able to attend our conferences. For us, it's about getting those who wouldn't otherwise be able to get into the room in the room. Uh, Too often, the environmental movement and the corporate sustainability communities are both older, whiter, uh, more male and higher income than the rest of the general population, including people who are interested in these movements. So we are trying to bridge that gap at our conferences with an all-expensive-paid trip. So, yeah, so we pay their airfare, we pay their hotel, of course, get them into the conference. Um, and um, talk a little bit about, uh, first of all, who were who some examples of, of some of the people who came to Circularity 19? This is a competitive process. You have to apply, and we pick 10, I think, um, and you uh, spearhead that program. Uh, talk a little bit about just maybe a few of the people who were there. There were an incredible cohort this year. Um, This year we had this young woman named Steph Funk from Plant Chicago, which is a local organization that works on uh, food access and food waste uh, at a local scale. And so she was interested in the circular economy and seeing it, how it's accelerating and being brought into action with corporates um, and beginning to take some of those practices and talking points and engaging techniques back to what she's working on. We also had a recently graduated uh, student named Isaac Carew. Um, He went to school at Rice University in Texas, and so he just graduated. He was a theology and biology major, and he's really interested in a clean economy and um, sustainability for all, and so he brought a perspective of combining um, both cultural level community um, interests with coming in as an incoming Deloitte management consultant next year. So for him to be able to bring some of this systems thinking that goes on in the circular economy, um, especially at Circularity 19, into his work next year, will be able to uh, make things pretty intersectional. Yeah, it was really a great group. I had a chance to, to meet with them, spend some time with them. I, I think one of the things that's interesting, and I wonder your thoughts on this, is that, you know, obviously we're giving them a good experience in, in ex- introducing them to to the community uh, that at Circularity or also at Verge or, or, or Green Biz Conference in Phoenix. Um, but I think the community gets stuff out of them, too. What, what's your sense? I completely agree, and thanks for bringing that up. 
I think specifically at this conference, as we talk about the nascent circular economy and the ways that the current environment needs to change in order to accept this and to use our resources holistically, all of these things, in a lot of ways, we're also learning. And so the younger generations will be the ones doing a lot of this work um, as we transition. Uh, so including them, getting their voices, elevating and amplifying their ability to interact with everyone who's at this conference is really important. So this piece you wrote had some, um, I guess, feedback from the emerging leaders, some of the things that, that, that they said. Was there anything that surprised you that uh, you heard that you maybe didn't anticipate? I thought that Taylor Raymond, the solid waste administrative intern at the city of Phoenix, uh, really summed it up very well. She, when we met and we talked at the conference, was had just finished a month of doing zero waste. And that's really impressive, first of all, at a consumer level. Uh, she had a tiny little jar and all of her waste for that month, all of her plastics were in that jar. And I- Wow. Yeah. But to have her in the room and to have her be able to talk about working in waste, doing this herself as a consumer, and be able to engage with the corporates and the analysts, um, she talked in, as she told me, um, about thinking about logistics and relationships in ways that she had never thought of before. And so I think that being able to encourage these partnerships and collaborations was and see the value and impact um, was really encouraging and surprising. That's great. I love this program. So next up is Verge 19 in October. Uh, there'll be another uh, cohort of emerging leaders there. When are we putting out the uh, request or I guess the opportunity to apply for that? This is so perfectly timed because it's actually opening this Monday on July 22nd. And so we will have the application out starting in the morning. You'll be able to click on our text ads in our newsletters. You'll also be able to access it on the events page on our site. And it'll also be posted on some LinkedIn groups, uh, our social media pages, and just keep an eye out for that. Great. And what's the period? When does that uh, close? It should close in early September. Uh, tell your friends, uh, tell your classmates, and apply as soon as possible. Great. Well, thanks for all the great work you do on that. Holly Seacon is Associate Editor at GreenBiz. Thanks so much, Joel. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and find more about the organization, stories, and events we mentioned in this episode. While you're over there, check out our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. Our email is 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week. Meanwhile, thanks to Shauna Rappaport for filling in this week. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in. 